Hello and welcome to Podularity, the online books program that brings you authors and books in a pod. My name is George Miller, and my guest today is writer, broadcaster, blogger, and Cambridge professor of classics, Mary Beard. One snowy day in February, I went to see Mary at home in Cambridge to talk to her about her latest book, Pompeii, The Life of a Roman Town. Our wide-ranging conversation took in art, sex, belief, and of course the vexed question of eating dormice. I've started, though, by asking Mary about her own first visit to Pompeii. Oh, I went to Pompeii, actually, when I was about 19, and I was still an undergraduate, and I'd done a course in my classics degree in Cambridge. I'd done a course on Pompeii, and I was actually went, I actually went you know, feeling rather confident that I knew about this place. And I went with my mate, who hadn't done the course on Pompeii, but was also doing classics, and the idea was going to be I was going to show her around. And I think that's when I first decided that Pompeii was both more interesting and more complicated than I'd been led to believe. And I remember we'd spent a very, very long time looking at Pompeian painting, painting on the walls of the houses at Pompeii, and how this was divided into four styles, which I'd written essays on and been to lecture after lecture on, and I was all ready to tell my mate just about how Pompeian painting worked. And when I got there, it didn't seem to fit what I'd learned. I looked at all these walls and they were all a bit different. And I thought I was going to say, oh, I think this is second style, you know. And I couldn't really tell them apart. And for some time, I was a bit sort of taken aback by this. And I thought, help, I haven't done this properly. You know, I still haven't got the hang of this. But it was sort of later... I kind of flipped that and I thought, no, it's not me that's stupid here. It's what we were learning that was stupid. You know, it isn't as simple as what you've got in the books. And at that point, I always thought, yeah, I'd like to do something about this and share that kind of problem with people. And what you say about the styles of Pompeian painting holds good for everything, really. <laughs> Every aspect of, of daily life that you talk about, it, it is, as you say, more complicated than we think. It's more complicated than we think. But also, and I think this is the good news, I think what my book tries to do is to say, look, if you're sensible and you l- use your eyes and you just think, if you go around Pompeii with your brain switched on, you can see all kinds of things and you can work it out for yourself. You don't have to believe all this tosh that you're told about, whether it's the four styles or how this or that worked or what this building looked like. So what's great about Pompeii is both that it's, it is more complicated than everyone always tells you, but it's, it's kind of, you can open it up for yourself if you just look, if you go around saying, oh, I wonder how they lit this room, you know, where was the window, this kind of thing. And as soon as you get your brain turned on and your eyes open, uh, you can make the site work for you. And that's what I think is great fun about it. But the, the non-expert going around sometimes will be misled by restoration or indeed misdirection from from the signs or from the guidebook, weren't they? Well, of course, I'm bound to say that the non-expert will need my book before they can really understand and start to use their eyes and their brain on the site. And yeah, you, there's some background information that you need to know. And actually, it's background information that you're not often told. 
right? What I thought was amazing when I came to really decide what I was going to say about this site was that an awful lot of the really essential information is kept from you. The, the, the biggest, the biggest, single biggest factor that makes a huge difference to how you look at the site is an awful lot of it has been restored. You know, it's Pompeii was a town that was destroyed by a volcano. You know, when volcanoes erupt, they do not leave the buildings with their roofs on, right? And one of the things that the people in the site have done, the archaeologists in the site have done since the late 19th century, I think for very good reason, is actually restore these buildings. They've put roofs on. They've tried to recreate the houses as they thought they were. But I think it's terribly important to realise that most of the stuff you see in Pompeii, which is above kind of human height, most of it, not absolutely all of it, is 19th and 20th century masonry. It's not ancient. And when you see that, that explains why the colour sort of changes, you know, halfway up the wall. And I'm not against restoration at all. I think it makes the houses much easier to understand and you get a feel of what they're like and all the rest. But I think it's terribly important to know that. And that's never said. I've, I've listened to people go around houses clearly thinking that everything they see is Roman. You talk about the murals in the house and in the villa of the mysteries and how that gives you perhaps the best example of the sort of visual saturation of this all-round wall painting. But that is the result of, of heavy restoration, isn't it? Yes. I mean, it's the Villa of the Mysteries with this extraordinary, bright, all-encompassing red room with something very strange going on, which we no longer understand, but involving flagellation, weddings, um, revealing phalluses and this kind of stuff. You know, the big now, one of the big tourist hotspots of the site. It is terribly... It's terribly affecting when you go. You really kind of think, God, I'm really here walking into a, to a Roman site with all the kind of lusciousness in your face of this deep, dark, gorgeous red. I'm a bit over the top for my taste, but still very, you know, very in your face. Well, it was only a few years ago that I realised, thanks to some work that a couple of American archaeologists had done on it, that that gorgeous kind of saturation bombing feel of this room was the result of restoration when it was first uncovered. They had a problem, they uncovered this gorgeous painting, but there was an awful lot of damp and sort of nasty salt crystals started to appear through the painting, which was deeply disfiguring of their great new find. The only way they could think of removing it and protecting it was wiping off the salt crystals and smearing it with petroleum jelly. Now, that seeped into the painting, and it's what accounts in very large part for the wonderful lustrous quality that the painting has. The general picture of the whole townscape that emerges is one which is less orderly, less planned, less, I think you say, stereotyped and normalised, less less of those things than we conventionally think. It's, it's more, there's more sort of random human variability in it in your picture of Pompeii than the one we sort of conventionally uh, are used to. Yeah, I think Pompeii was an awful mess. 
We, and we tend to think that Roman towns are frightfully well organised and they've got a very elaborate and great pattern of estuaries, and in part that's true. But I think the more you look at Pompeii, the more you and the more you repopulate it. It's fine to go around this grid pattern now and there's nobody there apart from the other tourists. But if you actually repopulate it with people living and working there, it is smelly and it's dirty and there are people kind of in places where they're not supposed to be on the kind of grand stereotypical model. I mean, you know, one very obvious uh, case that I talk about in the book is where did people sleep? Now, we think people sleep in bedrooms. Go to Pompeii, look, do these houses have bedrooms? Well, unless they were upstairs, which is possible, but there are quite serious reasons for thinking it isn't likely. There aren't any designated bedrooms, really. And so you suddenly see that the inside of a Pompeian house, and it's, that's perhaps the easiest way of understanding this, is not the kind of ordered, neat place with separate functions going on in different places. But you've got couches, and sometimes in the day you sit on the couch, and then you might go to bed on the couch. Mm. And they're in little rooms that are sort of you know, don't fit our designation. They're not living rooms and they're not bedrooms, they're kind of both. And you think, well, okay, so suppose I walked through a house at Pompeii at night. You know, what would I find? Well, okay, there'd be some people off on these couches, but I suppose you'd find the slaves just bedded down on the floor, probably. And it, it's all a bit more improvised, a bit mm. more kind of, you know, uh, uh, messy, I think, in both in a literal sense. I mean, it probably was dirty. I mean, where did they put all their rubbish? on the street I bet but also messy in terms of being less orderly than we'd Mm. like it to be I mean another thing you get told when you go to Pompeii is you know you go to a bath building big public bath building and you'll get a plan and it'll tell you that they all went round the same way you know first of all you went into the frigidarium the cold room then you went into the tepidarium the warm room and then the caldarium the hot room and so you get these kind of normative paths around the building and and you go and look at this and you think well why didn't they go to how why did they go to the frigidarium first maybe some people did but you know let's give them the benefit of the doubt for a bit of kind of you know know, initiative you know autonomy initiative and Mm. you know you could wander around these aren't you know you could you could go back to the tepidarium after you'd been in the hot room you know and so on and I really did think that as soon as you kind of, as soon as you put the people back in, you say, and you get them living in there, none of it is quite so orderly and rigid and kind of Roman. Mm. You know, we kind of like to think of the Romans as, you know, never doing anything out of order. I'm probably doing that all the time. Mm. I mean, in some cases you're saying, actually, they, they weren't as much like us as we think in terms of like the designation of the rooms in their houses. And other times you're saying, well, actually, they, they were, they were in this regard, like as in that, they, you know, they, they would mill around and they wouldn't necessarily follow things slavishly. Now, when it comes to sex, what, what, in, what, in what direction? Because if, oh. one, could, one could easily get the impression that they are sort of completely sex-crazed and there are fallacies everywhere and prostitutes everywhere and the number of brothels in the city has been estimated as being, you know, three dozen or more. So how do you, how do you, how do you begin to get a sort of fix on, on this area, which seems to be a particular area of fascination with, with visitors and people who are doing research on it? I think it's very hard. I think in one way it's the, it's the hardest. I mean, it's the most... You know, if you say, look, every question about what the ancient world is like 
sort of does come down to were they like us or completely different? The sex question is in a way the hardest nut to crack there. I think it's very easy to get the impression that this was a terribly lusty society. Probably not very nice to women, but that sort of, it was a kind of sexual paradise of freedom for your average bloke. Advertised, of course, by, you know, phalluses everywhere you look. You know, phallus over the bread oven, phallus in the pavement, phallus on the wall, and at least one brothel, probably no more. And it's often been written up, really, obviously kind of people have modern you know modern commentators have got big investment here it's often been written up as you know a place where there weren't any sexual rules at least for the guys and i think that i think the key thing the matter with that view is it makes a fundamental error if you go to pompeii you don't find sexual rules in the places we expect to find them but that doesn't mean there aren't any sexual rules. Wait, what do you mean by the places we expect? Well, you know, I mean, if you think about how sex is policed today, you know, that you know, we would not actually think it particularly nice to have a large, well, large phallus above your oven, would we? Right? So, you know, we think, no, I haven't got one. Um, uh, so that would in a sense be rule breaking for mm. us and it isn't for the Romans now we then think well so there's no rule this is a mm. sexual paradise or to freedom we think kind of changing tack you know, and you know, one minute being frightfully prudish and thinking phallus above mm. bread oven mm. pardon me <laughs> and then thinking my goodness me what a world of, of complete yes. openness well the more you look at the kind of hints about sexuality in Pompeii the more you discover that that, you know, it isn't quite the Garden of Eden that it's painted. And that's partly because from the, you can look at the graffiti and you can see there, going back to our own experience, you can see blokes moaning about how the girl they think they've got the hots for doesn't want them. Mm. You know, so that it, this is not just a man's world where he screws whatever he wants. But also, even within this phallic display, there are all kinds of strange anxieties come to the surface when you look at them. And there's a very famous object which I illustrate in the book, which is a, it's a picture of a, a bloke. A sort of, he looks like a kind of gladiator or a beast fighter in the amphitheatrical games. And he's got, um, he's got an enormous phallus, his little bloke. He's made of bronze. He's a lamp, actually, or if not a lamp, he's a kind of wind chime. You know, he's an ornament, he hangs up. And he's got bells all over him. So he's got vast phallus, bigger than him, and bells all over the place. And what's he doing? He's got a knife in one hand and he's trying to cut his phallus off. And you think, this is a kind of, this doesn't fit with my, uh, my kind of idea of this is sexual sort of, a sexual heaven where men are just being men. You know, I don't know what's going on here, but having a bronze image hanging up in a bar of a little bloke trying to cut his own cock off, if that isn't an indication of sexual anxiety and problem, I don't know what is. Now, it's hard, they're hard to find and they're hard to dig out, but there's a sense in which the ancients are not just, you know, they might be having sex in different places hmm. from us, but they're just as anxious about it. I think my favourite example, actually, of that 
is uh, the gladiators in the gladiators slogans and I've, it's a very famous set of slogans about gladiators saying uh, X is the is the heartthrob of the girls Y is you know you know what every girl dreams of this mm. kind of stuff and these are often quoted in you know mainstream ancient history books because it's said to be really good evidence for stuff we hear about elsewhere about how women really did indeed have the hearts for gladiators mm. and these graffiti from Pompeii which look like say you know X is the heartthrob of the girls are often used as evidence for that. What I was really surprised to discover when I wrote the book was actually where the graffiti were found. I suppose I kind of imagined them on a street wall or something. Actually, they were found in the gladiators' barracks. <laughs> now, it kind of changes the meaning that they were written. These graffiti say X is the heartthrob of the girls was written by the gladiator, not by the girl, mm. right? They were written in the gladiators' barracks, by blokes who didn't have all that long to live. yeah, mm. And so they end up, I think, being a kind of strangely poignant yeah, version of gladiatorial self-imaging, not a nice proof that every girl would love to go to bed with a gladiator given half a chance. Mm. Yeah. Well, the, 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 the example that sticks in my mind, you say something along the lines of, if, if you saw on a bus shelter today, Suzanne does it for a fiver, you wouldn't think, well, you wouldn't legitimately think either that A, Suzanne was a prostitute or the five pounds was the going rate for sex. That, that's right. And so and there have been amazing, absolutely amazing studies which have tried to, A, work out what, well, they've tried to work out what the cost of a prostitute was in Pompeii. Sort of kind of the, the crossover between sexual history and economic history, right? Mm. What think? And so people have written down very earnestly all the graffiti, there's quite a lot, which says, you know, you can have Marcella for two denarii or mm. whatever. I listed them all up and tried to get a kind of price range. And the problem is, obviously, what people say about prostitution you know, can be as much an insult as it is a fact, you know, mm. so that there is the, the old bus station. Tracy is a slag, you can have her for 5p. Mm. Does not necessarily mean that Tracy A is a prostitute, or B, that she would sleep with you for 5p, or five, or whatever. Mm. What you're saying is, oh, I don't like Tracy, because mm. she probably, because Tracy said no to me. <laughs> No, we can't let this interview go by without addressing briefly the Dormouse question, oh. because um, you show that Dormice were eaten, but they were not, not your staple fare, not your everyday <laughs> takeaway <laughs> snack. Yeah, we, we, you know, the, the other big problem about Pompeii or the Roman world, if it's not sex, it's about food, right? What do the Romans eat? And every single one of us has been brought up with a, an image of Roman dining, you know, where rather lusciously clad couples recline at the table, you know, being fed grapes by slaves. And then one of them says, oh, would you like a dormouse, darling, or whatever? Now, I have to say that I've always been deeply, deeply suspicious of whether dormouse was ever on the menu of the average Roman family. And I remain pretty suspicious of that. But Pompeii does provide some slight evidence in a concrete form that dormice were indeed eaten by some people 
presumably the rich. I mean, the weirder the food, uh, the more likely it is to be the rich to consume it. It's a generally good rule. Because there are a couple of objects found in the excavations which match absolutely to a description we get in Roman writers of a kind of vessel for fattening dormice in, presumably then for putting them on the table. They're called a glirarium, the name of this particular vessel, um, from glis, the word for dormice. I remember my Latin teacher saying, you will never forget this word, and it's true. Glis gliris, I've never forgotten. That's right. Glis glirarium is a dormouse holder. And it is a pottery vessel. Just on the outside, it looks a pretty ordinary kind of pot. But inside, the pottery has been formed into a kind of run, a bit like a dormouse wheel, so that the dormice, the dormice could kind of run around on a sort of chute around the sides of the pot to get a bit of exercise. And there's a little feeding hole, and presumably you put the top on, otherwise the dormice would have got out. Um, and it does look as if, you know, there were occasionally dormice consumed in relatively rich houses where indeed they kept the little things in a little pot fattening up until they came to be killed for the banquet. But most people meanwhile were eating what we think of as a you know basically a southern Mediterranean diet not much meat cheese olives bread a bit of wine. Jolly healthy too really they had you know Pompeian cabbages were very well known so lots of fruit and veg southern mediterranean diet minus the tomatoes and uh, the rich were probably eating a much less healthy diet in terms of meat there was chicken and pork pork was really the staple but the i suppose the staple that goes staple condiment that goes across all classes whether you're rich or poor, is the famous rotten fish sauce that the Romans were well known to cook everything in, smear on everything, called garum, G-A-R-U-M. Now, we know that garum was made at Pompeii. Again, we can tell from Roman writers something about how it was made. I mean, basically it is Hmm. getting fish and letting it go rotten. Hmm. And, hey presto, there's your sauce whether it was completely disgusting or whether it was rather like a kind of Far Eastern condiment as we know, who knows? But certainly it was used widely in Pompeii. We find great vats of it. And indeed, there's one bloke who has a vast, vast mansion in the city who absolutely clearly got rich on the profits of selling this. I, I love the fact that you quoted some of the advertising copy, basically, that the garum seller had. And it's just like modern sort of marketing hype. You've got different grades. It's like your balsamic vinegar that's sort right, of sellers. That's right. Absolutely excellent, prime quality garum. Um, and, uh, and you can have slightly different versions. You can have the lees of the garum or you could have the top of the garum. And, of course, there was a... We know from for other reasons that there was a a Jewish community at Pompeii and you can get kosher garum which presumably was garum made without any shellfish going near it so it absolutely is clear everybody in Pompeii was going to have their garum what I think this tells us really is that dormice were for the few there was a relatively healthy diet for the poor who probably did better than the rich in some ways but what everybody had was garum 
and every community made sure it could get its garum. So the Jews, no shellfish, um, uh, and no doubt there are also their different grades. But if you want the staple, the thing that unites Roman diets, it's not poor little dormice dipped in honey, it's rotten fish sauce mm. on everything. You mentioned the Jewish community, and in a late chapter in the book, you come to belief and you say, if a, a native of Pompeii could have read this book, they would have been surprised that I've left belief to so late in the book because it was a city full of gods, is yeah. the way you describe it. Yeah. Um, religion's another tough nut to crack <laughs> for understanding the ancient world. It's difficult to understand what's going on religiously. That's partly because you go around the city, you walk around, and there are some buildings called temples, and you go into houses, and you will be pointed out things that are called domestic shrines. And the problem is that's easy enough, so you can kind of plot where religion happens in a way in Pompeii, but you haven't got the foggiest clue what went on in them. And that I think is a is really hard to know. I mean some basic things are very important and very different from what we expect. That's to say most temples not absolutely all, but most temples of the traditional civic official religion of Pompeii were houses for a god. They, were, they housed the statue of a god. Now, they're not like churches, in other words. You don't go there to worship. It's a house for a god. If you do any worship there, what it is is sacrifice, and it happens outside. So we kind of, I, I think, look at Roman temples and somehow make them into churches, the kind of congregational image, or synagogues for that matter. But that's quite different. And the Roman function of most temples was very different from that. And it was God's house, really. In fact, the Latin for temple is actually ides, which means house, much more commonly used than templum. All the same, it's more complicated than that. And I think what's interesting about Pompeii and what you see sort of starting in Pompeii is signs of different versions of what religious ritual and religious belief is going to turn out to be. Now, there are no Christians in Pompeii, as far as we can see. I mean, St Paul did go via South Italy when he went up to, to Rome to be executed, but there's, there's never been found any firm evidence of any Christian community there, though there are some clear evidence of some Jews, though no synagogue. What you can see, however, is you can see the beginning of different forms of religious experience, like particularly most famous of all at Pompeii, is the worship of Isis. Back into the 18th century, one of the first buildings discovered, you know, Mozart visited it, everybody visited it, was the Temple of Isis. An Egyptian deity who in some way had come to Italy and taken root within the Roman religious world, but interestingly offering a rather different form of religious experience. And I think it is pretty clear that whereas the cult of Jupiter, the Temple of Jupiter in the Forum at Pompeii, that's absolutely standard Roman temple, you know, no congregational worship here, no nice priest who'll look after you and have a kind of pastoral view of his flock, go to the Temple of Isis and 
there you'll find something much more familiar to us in religious terms. You'll find a community, you'll find priests who, in a sense, look after their community. So I think why it's difficult but also interesting when you look at the religious experience in Pompeii is you get kind of these different models and of course actually religious experience is at the moment Pompeii is destroyed on the change Mm. and the kind of version that we're going to take for granted of what a religion is which is kind of a kind of consequence of personal belief and built around a community a a religious community of believers Mm. is just beginning to come to come into view with the temple of Isis Mm. So I think it's very, very hard. And as for what people did in their household shrines, heaven only knows. I mean, we have a kind of slightly Victorian picture of them, I think. Everybody gets up for family prayers in the morning at the household shrine with the paterfamilias, the father of the family. Um, Whether anybody worshipped at all anything at them, whether some of them, I always suspect, were shelves, not shrines anyway, but you know, people always want to have a shrine in a house, so a little ledge will do. <laughs> so it's, it's, it is very, very complicated. But also I think Pompeii is a nice case study yeah. of the complexities, but also the changes that are going on in the, in the just just pre-Christian world. Mm. You know, St Paul might have gone to Pompeii, he probably didn't, but he might have. I want to ask you one last question, and it's a counterfactual one. If Vesuvius hadn't erupted in 79, and we hadn't had this freeze-frame picture with all its complexity and ambiguities, if we, if we didn't have all that data, to what extent would our view of Rome be impoverished? There's nowhere else in the world, even with all the restoration that's gone on, and even with all the scepticism you've got to bring to bear on this, there's nowhere else in the Roman world where you can walk down a Roman street and walk into a Roman house as if it was kind of yesterday. And I think that's what's important. There are all kinds of other bits of evidence we've got from domestic life. There are places such as Ostia, the port of Rome, where there are sometimes similar kind of miracles, really, of preservation. But there is no place where domestic life was so can be so immediate to us. I mean, that actually, in the end, for all the way that I want to tell you, I think it's very important that you've got to be a bit sceptical. You mustn't believe all you're shown. Pompeii isn't a city which was just covered over by ash, sort of in mid-breakfast. Right? All those caveats have to be raised, but still it's the nearest thing we get to walking back into the Roman world. And you can still go to Pompeii, even now, even with millions of tourists, and you can find a back street, and you can walk down it, and there's nobody else there, and you could be in 79 AD. That's perfect for me. Mary Beard. Pompeii, The Life of a Roman Town, is published by Profile and is available in paperback. This podcast is a longer version of an interview that originally appeared on Blackwell Online at blackwell.co.uk. That's all for this edition of Podularity, so thank you for listening, and until next time, goodbye.